Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast where we listen to our doctors and public health officials, even if we really like cooking. That's gonna make sense later, because today we're talking about typhoid, and a little bit about asymptomatic carriers as a little bit of a sliding in extra bonus into this episode. My name is Mia Mulder. And my name is Salem. Uh, And before we dig into the slimy trough of today's episode, how have you been, my dear (laughs) co-host? Every time we do an episode, you come up with some some weird way to describe what's coming. It's what the listeners want. It's what the listeners want. They're craving the slimy trough. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm good. I'm fighting with my stem cells still doing organoids i'm fighting them my patient's stem cells are acting up are they winning yeah (laughs) i'm sorry to say i'm it's a battle i'm losing um no but i have had some success with them but they've been taking up a lot of my um time but i'm good how are you i'm good i'm not doing anything i'm kind of on holiday not really like I'm, i'm making a video but i'm on like a political holiday Mm -hmm. because nothing happens in the municipality over the summer. Mm -hmm. So all the politicians have like a three month long holiday where we still get paid weirdly enough, waste of taxpayer money. But I'm not doing, I'm not doing anything. And I'm realizing that maybe I like working, which Mm -hmm. is a horrible, horrible realization because Mm -hmm. I'm just wandering around the house depressed and being like, "Mm, I wish I had tasks, (laughs) things to do. And I don't want to have that. How depressing. I truly am 30 years old. You need a hobby is what you need. I need a hobby, yeah. And playing map games doesn't hit for me as much anymore. Do you remember those Warhammer figurines you got a while back? I know. I'm scared of painting them. Why? what if they're ugly? They're not going to be ugly. <laughs> then it's going to take so much more work to not do it. <laughs> to like un- to undo the work. The bad work. There's a part of me that's just like, if I just don't do it, it's, it can be hypothetically good sometime in the future. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Oh, piece of news. We're getting um, our driving licenses because we're both two gays who can't drive. Yes, but this summer, apparently, we're learning how to drive. Yeah. We've both done the eye exam now. Yeah. So we, we've apparently, been told that we can't drive. Apparently, one of my eyes is like so much worse than the other one. Which is actually really funny to me. How is that... I don't know. How have you not noticed that? Because they, the other one compensates mm. for it. That's what the lady said. Interesting. Uh, a lovely lady by the name of Olga at the optometrist's office told me that. She was very kind about it. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, I got a skinny Swedish lady who uh, told me that my eyes work great, but I should probably keep my glasses on. Right. Anyway, anyway. T- today's episode is typhoid. And it's mm-hmm. going to be a good one, folks. I can tell. This is going to be a good and warm episode. It's going to be really tasty. But before we go in here... Juicy and delicious. Juicy and delicious. But before we go in there, let's talk about our juicy and delicious... Patrons. patrons. <laughs> because by being a patron to this wonderful show, you get access to a bunch of special things, like a video version where you get to see our lovely faces and a bunch of vi- visual jokes that you add in, which mm-hmm. is very fun. Also, the chance for an in-episode shout-out. And in this episode, we want to thank... Michaela Gonzalez-Boschetti. Thank you, Michaela, for supporting us. Your support means the world. Specifically, it allows us to keep the show going. Also, you didn't mention this, but by being a Patreon, you also get a chance to request episode topics and Easter eggs. You can, at certain tiers, get to play video games with us and a bunch of other stuff. So if you're interested, check out our Patreon. And with all of that said, 
Let's dive into today's episode. Okay, so I want to introduce this bacteria to you. So I have to be honest with you here. I did not know much about typhoid fever before I started doing research for this episode. Because it's like, it's this disorder that people know about um, or like hear about, especially in like a historical context. Mm. But it's not really a concern anymore, at least not in the West. So nobody really bothers with it. Um, It fell off, as the kids like to say. Forgotten. The forgotten bacillus. Yeah. So, you know, so it's not really like a big thing anymore. But this is a medical history podcast. And typhoid fever has definitely been part of history. It has played a pretty important role in history. So we wanted to talk about it. So the first thing that I want to mention is a common misconception. Typhoid fever and typhus. Those two things sound very similar. And to be honest, I wasn't really sure if they're the same. Turns out they're very different disorders caused by very different bacteria. So typhoid fever is caused by a bacteria related to the salmonella bacteria and is most often transmitted from person to person due to people not washing their hands and contaminating things they touch. While typhus is caused by a bacteria from the rickettsia family that is carried by fleas, lice, and ticks, which infect rats and other such beasts. Such critters. Such critters and creatures. The typhoid-causing bacteria is spread by the four Fs, including flies, fingers, feces, and fomites. And this most commonly... What's a fomite? So a fomite is like an object that has been contaminated by somebody who who carries a bacteria. So typhoid fever is transmitted through hands, right? Like people get their hands dirty, they don't wash it, and then they go and like touch everything in the house. And the things that they touch become fomites. And the things that they touch become fomites. Also, it's dirty shit. Dirty shit, yeah. I I guess you could could call it that also. Um, But it's also transmitted via contaminated water, undercooked food, especially poultry and eggs, um, and sometimes turtles. And the fomites are often utensils and clothes. Um, You know, you're in contact for a long time with the clothes if you're wearing them, and also utensils. Obviously, like, you put them in your mouth and the bacteria can spread quite easily. As you can imagine, this type of infection is more common in areas with poor sanitation and overcrowding. And similarly to other disorders that we've talked about, like leprosy and rabies, typhoid fever is not really a problem in the West anymore and therefore is forgotten. However, it's still a significant cause of illness worldwide, particularly in South Central Asia and Southern Africa. And what's even worse is that typhoid fever cases are increasing rapidly due to an increase in population, um, increasing pollution, and shortages in drinking water. Typhoid fever incidence is also increased by poor nutrition because a normal and healthy gut flora is protective against the infection. Incidence is also increasing due to climate change, which is, of course, also affecting the developing world the most. Climate change. The fuck? (laughs) Climate change sucks. It's difficult to maintain good water infrastructure when the water goes up. (laughs) It's not meant to do that. When the water goes away. As far as the bacteria itself, it's honestly not that interesting. Um, If I can say that. If I can have like... A preference. Personal opinions about bacteria. Um, Fucking cuck bacteria. It's a little bacillus. um, So it's shaped like a rod. It has a flagellus and it's facultative in aerobic. So it can make energy if oxygen is present. But if there is no oxygen, it's fine too. I don't care. Um, I like oxygen, but I don't need it. It doesn't... Oxygen preferred. Make do. But... 
and overall it's just kind of like boring run of the mill like it's a it's a mediocre little bacterium and i honestly kind of hate it because it's just so boring and it still causes disease it's so uninteresting it's so it's uninteresting not like it's not like rabies so anyway i hate that it's still a problem but so this bacteria is transmitted through contaminated food and water in general and hygienic conditions so you can probably guess that the main system being affected is the digestive system now let me run a hypothetical by you one day you decide to be adventurous and try a new restaurant. I love that. You get a nice meal. Great. Unfortunately, what you don't know is that the meal is contaminated. Unbeknownst to you, you swallowed the salmonella typhi bacteria. Oh, I hate that. I hate that. I didn't buy, and that's not on the menu. <laughs> so you might think, I got stomach acid. Surely the stomach acid will take care of the bacteria. Yeah, of course. I love that. You would be wrong because the bacterial strain you ingested is resistant to stomach acid and also there is a lot of it, so the stomach acid is useless. Ah, oh, dang it. <laughs> the bacteria also has a protein called a VI antigen, which prevents macrophages from ingesting it, so it also avoids the first line of immune defense. Next, the bacteria has the flagella, the tail. It helps the bacteria swim and spread into the gut and also adhere to the gut wall. It's too fast. <laughs> it's too fast for my immune system. <laughs> Fast and furious. Typhoid. It's so it's so fast. It's so fucking fast. Um, so the, you put it on your tongue, immediately it's in your brain. <laughs> in your brain. It doesn't actually go to the brain, thank God. But so what it does, it goes into the gut. And then in the gut, like the gut wall is made up by these um, specialized cells called enterocytes and epithelial cells. They internalize the bacteria and then spit it out into the lumen. Then you might think, you know, my gut has the pyrus patches. They will protect me. Of course. We, we, the the pyrus patches, the, of course. <laughs> so the pyrus patches are like the private immune system of the gut. And they're very important because the intestine contains a lot of pathogens. And so it's very important for the gut to have like its own local mm -hmm. immune system. Unfortunately, you are wrong again because the bacteria do induce the proliferation of these patches, but like if too much proliferation happens, um, this can result in intestinal bleeding and ulceration. Mm -hmm. So you're, again, your immune system tries to protect you, but it harms you yeah. instead. Because it also gives you diarrhea and shit too, right? Yeah, it's, um, it like, really messes with your, with your like, gut, digestive yeah. system. But the bacteria also enter the epithelial M cells, which overlie the pyrus patches and then get transported to, to the lymph nodes, from which they enter the circulation and spread to other organs, uh, most commonly the gallbladder, but also the liver, spleen, and bone marrow. Oh, that's not good. Um, you don't so, want stuff in the bone marrow? <laughs> no. You don't Typically. want stuff in the other organs, too. Like this, you know, them entering the circulatory system, the lymphatic system, it's... It's not great. You are now sicky. <laughs> so in terms of final clinical presentation, it really varies depending on how much uh, bacteria you consumed, like how, like the strain itself, and also how good your immune system is. But the illness can vary from uh, mild, you know, mild fever, headache, fatigue, and malaise to fatal consequences such yeah. as intestinal perforations gastrointestinal hemorrhages and encephalitis yeah um you don't want that so it's you know you you, you should probably treat it as soon as you <laughs> as soon as you find out you have it if it's start, not something to ignore yeah how what what are some of the like main symptoms because like fever typhoid fever makes sense but what are some other symptoms that you would need to like keep an eye out for like if you start bleeding like in the stool yeah 
Like that's something. Like if you, if you, if the, you, you so check get that checked out anyway. Blood but. in the stool. That's a bit of a later symptom mm. because at this point you're probably already having like you know ulcerations that have gone like pretty far. Oh. Um, but first symptoms are mostly like. You know, headaches, malaise, loss of appetite, um, maybe losing weight, diarrhea, fatigue, mm. things like that. And it's quite... Feeling really sick. Just yeah. feeling weak and bad and not being able to eat. Typhoid fever is pretty difficult to diagnose just based on symptoms because the symptoms are just so general. So usually you take like a, you know, like a blood test, do like a, you, you, like an antibody test mm. um, or a PCR to detect the bacteria, proteins, or DNA in the blood. But an interesting thing about typhoid is that it doesn't always cause symptoms. Sometimes it can just stay in the body, and then, you know, you you never know you actually have it. And one of the most famous cases of this happening is the case of typhoid Mary, which I will be discussing later. Uh, but briefly, what happens is that the bacteria infects macrophages, which is one of the main uh, types of immune cells, uh, which are known for their ability to engulf and digest pathogens. And their name actually comes from Greek, and it means big eater. Mm. Macrophage. <laughs> Macrophage. And these cells have two states of being. The first one is where they produce a lot of inflammatory products. And the second is when they get tired, <laughs> basically, in transition. <laughs> yeah, and they transition into a more gentle state where they... Um, they still I'm so sleepy. So they're they still attack pathogens, but they're not like you know they're they're a bit more chill. Like they they mostly just engulf, engulf mm. but they don't produce these like toxic products. Mm. And the typhoid bacteria has a way of like expediting this macrophage switch from the aggressive to the mild state, which makes their environment more suitable for replication. So the bacteria evades the immune system and enter the macrophages where they multiply and then travel to organs like the gallbladder and the biliary tract via these macrophages. And then in the gallbladder, one mechanism by which they can form a long-term infection is by forming a biofilm on gallstones. So the bacteria is then shed with the bile, which enters the fecal matter, then, of course, if the person doesn't wash their hands well, um, then the bacteria can end up on their hands. And then, you know, that's how you have a contamination. Damn. Wash your hands, folks. It's always a good idea to wash your hands. I mean, it's, it's very rarely washing your hands is the bad thing to do. <laughs> so the history of typhoid is complicated for... A number of reasons, uh, many of which have to do with the fact, like you said, that typhoid is very difficult to diagnose based on symptoms alone. Uh, in fact, we don't actually like identify typhoid as an individual specific illness until just like 150 years ago, roughly. It's, it's very recent that we do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, we don't really see a lot of mention of like typhoid or things that could refer to that specifically in history. But... I'm going to give it my good old college try. Uh, there's also some like genetic studies that scientists have done on like previous plagues and things like that, which I think can give us some, some historical answers about typhoid. Uh, so we're going to start with ancient Egypt. There are references to a disease with symptoms that resemble typhoid fever in the Edwin Smith papyrus. And that is an ancient Egyptian medical text, which dates back to around 1600 BCE. 
we've mentioned the Edwin Smith papyrus before. It has nothing to do with a man called Edwin Smith. That's just a guy who bought the papyrus in like a store. We hate him. Every five episodes or so it comes up and we once again <laughs> remind everyone how much we hate him. We hate him and they do the, they keep doing this with the Egyptian papyri. Mm-hmm. They just name them after the guy that bought it from like a street vendor in Egypt during the Egyptian craze. It's a that's a mad for a different episode. Uh, but this medical text describes a condition known as cachexia, which has a lot of similarities with typhoid fever, uh, such as you know fever, abdominal pain, diarrhea. And it's believed that the unsanitary conditions of ancient cities and the Nile River specifically can act as a potential source of contamination that could help the spread of the disease. So the word cachexia, it sounds very familiar to me. I feel like we've mentioned it before. Was it during the eating disorders episode? Uh, I'm not sure. I feel like it is. Wasn't I... it? Wasn't cachexia the term used to refer to a person who was like not eating and they were becoming sick because of it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't have that like off the top of my head. We all I know is we do an episode, we this, record it, and then <laughs> it's out of our heads. I d- I don't remember the last video that I made either. Like yeah. I don't. If I make something and it's out in the world, I can delete it from the hard drive of my mm-hmm. mind. Yeah, I I only have so much space for like pin numbers and, <laughs> and like ways to play map game. Crusader King's strategy takes a lot of hard drive and space in your brain important. and my brain also. And that's more important than like remembering what Kaikexia is. Um, But back to the ancient history part of the episode. Similarly, as in Egypt, in ancient India, the Ayurvedic texts mentioned a febrile illness called Javara, which is characterized by symptoms akin to typhoid fever. These texts emphasize the importance of hygiene and sanitation in preventing the transmission of the disease. Again, ancient Indian doctors were like, please wash your hands. Please, like, we, we don't know exactly why this works, but if I can work, just do it. Please, please be clean. Ancient Indian cities had like pretty dense population and limited sanitation infrastructure, which could be good breeding grounds for typhoid. In China, historical records suggest that typhoid-like illnesses were prevalent during various dynasties. For instance, during the Ming Dynasty, from around 1300 to 1600 CE, outbreaks of febrile illnesses with symptoms resembling typhoid fever were heavily documented. Crowded living conditions, inadequate sanitation, and contaminated water sources were likely contributors to like these outbreaks. And we don't know again like whether or not any of these were exactly typhoid fever, because again, like it hasn't been specified yet, but probably. I-, I tried to look up the etymology, not the etymology, the epidemiology of, of typhoid fever to sort of see where it originates. And I had a hard time finding it because it's so ancient, it's mm-hmm. just like around everywhere like they can find traces of it in all ancient cities basically Mm -hmm. but it's difficult to sort of pin down whether or not like this outbreak specifically was caused by typhoid fever or if like there were a a wave of disease uh, and then part of that was typhoid and part of it was typhus and something was something else and i mean honestly it was probably a mix um most likely because not washing your hands can can help the spread of a number of pathogens so they probably were you know they probably had typhoid and typhus and yeah <laughs> whole sorts of shit just mixing in a just mixing a mixing a pot a horrible stew of disease <laughs> yeah and like many of 
like ancient cities and societies were like very densely packed mm. and had like not great water infrastructure, which lived in close proximity with animals. And... Yeah, and uh, if you and if you don't have like access to clean water all the time, like all of these things can contribute to transmit a lot of waterborne diseases, mm. uh, not just not just typhoid. Mm. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, the absence of advanced diagnostic techniques during ancient times f- made it even more complicated to identify whether or not like this patient with this febrile illness has something different than like the other 10,000 patients who also have febrile illnesses that are like maybe a little bit different, but maybe not significant enough to the, to the point where you start to categorize them differently. So a lot of diseases that were classified under names that would evolve into typhoid fever were probably misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. So it's it's very difficult to know sort of from, from historical texts how prevalent typhoid fever actually was. And there are also some plagues where thanks to forensic science, we have a few more answers maybe regarding to how prevalent it could have been. And one of the most renowned outbreaks associated with typhoid-like symptoms is the plague of Athens, in 430 BCE, Greek ass names uh, Thucydides, Thucydides, an ancient Greek historian, provided detailed accounts of this. Uh, Thucydides, is rolling in his grave right now. You know what? It may be. <laughs> that's fine with me. If you lived in ancient Athens, odds are he defended slavery. Um. But maybe he didn't, in which case, uh, shout out to Thucydides. Thucydides. <laughs> well, anyway, he documented the plague of Athens in, in quite significant detail. Uh, and he said that the disease spread rapidly and caused high mortality rates among Athenian soldiers and citizens uh, and even their enemies. Because Athens during this time was like at constant warfare. The symptoms included fever, abdominal pain, diarrhea and delirium, which closely resemble those of typhoid fever. But there is a lot of debate whether or not this disease, like typhoid, was the one that caused the plague. Because there are different groups of scientists who are really catty towards each other in a bunch of studies about which disease it could have been. Academic Uh, people can be so bitchy and catty. They love being catty. So, like, typhoid is one of the leading theories. But if you start reading studies about it, they will, like, the, the people who propose it, they're like, we have found typhoid in mass graves that are relating to the plague. And then another study will come out and they will be like, well, actually, pigs uh, moved into that area a few decades after the plague, and they could have been infected with salmonella virus, which, it, like, genomically looks very similar to typhoid. And that's why you're wrong, because you don't, you don't differentiate between human and pigs and then like the first group of scientists will be like actually you're a cuck fuck you you're basic uh we did account for that you can't read and then they fight well anyway there there are other reasons why people also suspect the typhoid might not have been the disease responsible for the plague of athens because it was described to have started in northern africa but northern africa during this time was much less urbanized than the greek city-states uh, and typhoid fever is m- like significantly more likely to get a foothold and spread in urbanized cities and societies. So it doesn't make the most sense for it to have started in like 
small fishing villages and port cities. But we also see like in other parts of history that like urbanized societies suffer so, so much more from typhoid outbreaks and like febrile illnesses more than urbanized societies do. Um, this shows itself, especially during the age of colonialism, when colonies would be densely urbanized communities uh, where outbreaks and epidemics could often start because they would often have a, like a mishmash of people from, from Europe and they would live like behind very densely packed mm. walls. Uh, and there's actually a theory that the colony of Jamestown, which, uh, you know, pretty famous colony that kind of got wiped out. Uh, the thing that wiped it out could have been typhoid fever. Could have been. But we don't know. A few things that we do know a little bit more about, though, are two epidemics in 1545 and 1576 in modern-day Mexico called the uh, Cocolitzli epidemics. This is like Nahatl uh, pronunciations. I can't pronounce Nahatl. And these epidemics killed up to 15 million people, the vast majority of which were indigenous uh, populations. It was likely brought on by a breakdown of water infrastructure and poor living conditions as a result of the Spanish conquests that had happened both during this time and before. When people talk about sort of like Europeans coming in and spreading a bunch of disease, sometimes it's because Europeans have illnesses that indigenous populations weren't like immunity prepared for Europeans also just like destroyed the society and the economy of, of the of of the people that they conquered and just like oh you, no you can't live in your cities that have like well-developed farming mm. and water infrastructure all of you go into the slums now mm. and when that happens people die yeah it's uh, like a breeding ground for diseases that yeah. maybe existed before but like indigenous people could just avoid yeah. them by being clean and having a good infrastructure yeah like um modern day mexico city for example is built on top of uh i, th I think it's called uh, tenochtitlan and tenochtitlan was described by early spanish explorers as being like having a very advanced water infrastructure and that water infrastructure was pretty ruined after the spanish conquests took over the city and like renamed it and rebuilt it in in regards to more european standards which didn't really fit with like the actual landscape of the area and these epidemics are likely to have been typhoid fever but as we mentioned a bit earlier it could have been all sorts of febrile illnesses that just mixed and spread but typhoid fever again is like a huge top suspect in these epidemics other examples of outbreaks were during wartime uh, as soldiers typically would not be in great sanitary conditions, and many soldiers all over the world throughout history would suffer a death far more likely due to disease and illness than by actual battle wounds. Uh, and this is the case both in like Roman times and ancient Greek times all the way up until really recently. During the American Civil War, for example, roughly 85,000 Union troops died of typhoid, which is far more than those who died of gunshot wounds, specifically. And this, this metric only accounts for like gunshot wounds and typhoid specifically, but if you include all types of deaths, including like cannon and missing in action and all of those different things, the general ratio of people who died from illness and battle is roughly two to one. So mm -hmm. like you, if you died, you were twice as likely to have died of illness than had died in battle. Uh, but many soldiers who survived would also be taken home 
like to hospitals in major cities. And if they had suffered a disease in the trenches, for example, then they could very easily bring those diseases back home. And this could lead to minor outbreaks in various American cities during the time, most notably in Chicago, where uh, there was a pretty significant outbreak of typhoid during the time. Uh, but our modern understanding of typhoid fever uh, emerged in the 19th century due to advancements in medical science and bacteria studies. In 1837, Pierre Fidel Bretonneau, French as name from a French doctor, he made significant progress in differentiating typhoid fever from typhus, which was another febrile illness with similar symptoms, as we've kind of mentioned. Uh, because back then, people were like, are these two different things? Maybe there are, maybe they're not. Why did they name them so similarly? I don't understand. Like, if they're, no, because... if they're also so similar in <laughs> symptoms, why would you not... Like, why, why make it difficult? For me specifically, I think I think a <laughs> hundred years later, from what I could find in, I didn't I didn't put this part in the in the in the script itself, but I from what I remember, it had something to do with the fact that it was so similar. So they were like, they had they had a name for both diseases, uh, which would occasionally be called typhus alone. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, oh, but this is like marginally different, so we're gonna name that typhoid mm. instead so it like diverged so they, a little bit i mean yeah. I, I get that but it's so like they're historically related and i think that very early rationale here was that they thought that the diseases themselves were kind of related uh, and now we figured out that they're not that as related as maybe they thought back then however it wasn't until the late 19th century that the role of bacteria in causing typhoid fever was established in 1880 Karl Josef Ebert discovered the specific bacterium responsible for typhoid fever and named it Salmonella enterica serotype typhi. And this breakthrough opened up avenues for further research on the disease and its transmission, which led to, you know, some improvements when it came to the public management of typhoid. Not a cure, <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, we know what causes it, but now what? I mean, preventing spread... Yes. Also, like a really valuable. Yes, um, definitely. Like like, strategy. Yeah, and this is this is actually like significantly important too because for a significant amount of time, a lot of doctors believed that a lot of fevers were caused by the same disease, and they would just call them all enteric fevers, and that illnesses would be caused by unsanitary conditions. Which is kind, of, you know, kind of makes sense. You know, people are dirty; they get Ill, they get sick. Uh, but that also the treatment for those fevers would be to remove them from the unsanitary conditions. But if it's a bacteria that causes the disease, that then that doesn't work. Like you can be sanitary, and that will help limit the spread. Yeah. But that's not really the cause of it. And if a patient is sick, the patient is sick. Like they they have the bacteria; it is proliferating inside of them, no matter how clean and hygienic they are right now, and it, it can then spread in other hygienic circumstances. Sure. I mean, I guess if you don't have a cure, that's the best you've got. And to some extent, you know, it, it could help because then you're just kind of like giving the person the best chance for them to fight it out on their own. Yeah. Um, like you're, you're putting them in a situation where their immune system has a good shot at, maybe yeah. not a good, but it has like a better shot at fighting it. But sure, I mean, if it's a very severe case, then you kind of need 
like a treatment. Yeah. I think I think the the main benefits had more to do with limiting the spread yep. from patients who had already gotten it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, creating procedures in hospitals yep. so that staff doesn't get infected or that the disease doesn't spread within the hospital. Yep. Uh, because if you realize that it's being produced inside the body, then you can sort of like take steps to be like, okay, well then we're going to fix that. Uh, because treatments around this time weren't the best. It was mostly symptom management, uh, which has been the case for like a lot of febrile illnesses throughout history, uh, which isn't uh, great because the way we've treated fever in history has varied significantly from temperature regulation in cold baths to bloodletting uh, to more modern-ish treatments to like staying hydrated and taking pain relievers which helps and as you say sort of give the patient the best shot at fighting it out themselves even though it doesn't directly attack the the bacteria um, but it is a bacteria and for those of you smart cookies out there, you know one thing that is really good against bacteria, <laughs> and that is antibiotics. And antibiotics were maybe the most significant milestone in the fight against typhoid fever. Um, the fight of pathogens, the fight know, of bacteria. Yeah. Like, well, we're talking specifically about typhoid. No, for sure, for sure. But like, can I take this moment to give antibiotics a shout out? Because my God... <laughs> We we love that shit. <laughs> Great job. What what a what a miracle. I live in fear. I saw a documentary when I was a kid about super bugs mm-hmm. and like the potential of living in a future where antibiotics sort of like, like become significantly less relevant and mm-hmm. like they stop working for mm-hmm. like a lot of diseases. I live in fear for that day. Like yeah. cuz that's going to be like vaguely post-apocalyptic. If that's the only thing that changes, because there are so many diseases that like are so easy to treat right now, but that you know wouldn't be if if antibiotics stop working. When was the last time you took antibiotics? I took antibiotics in 2016 for a throat infection that I had. I had. Other I think than that, my I most recent. Yeah, I ever taken antibiotics. My most recent one was also throat infection when I had to go to the hospital. One mm. more, you took me. And then I also had a kidney infection. And I remember, God, those antibiotics were a, like a godsend. I was in so much pain and they helped so much. Mm-hmm. I cannot, like I would have been dead right now if we didn't have antibiotics. I love modern oh. medicine <sighs> so much. So good. Um, and we're going to shout out one specific uh, <laughs> antibiotic in, in this episode. And that is uh, chloramphenicol. Do you want to give that a sango, science go? <laughs> Chloramphenicol. There we go. Uh, it is a broad-spectrum antibiotic, which emerged as an effective treatment for typhoid in the 1940s. Uh, and that proved highly effective in combating the bacterial infection and reducing mortality rates associated with typhoid. So we love that shit. And it became the drug of choice for treating typhoid fever, especially in regions where resistance to other antibiotics was less prevalent. And... It is one of those moments, one of those rare moments where you can say that everything was awful up until the 1940s where things became better. <laughs> it's the only situation where you can say that yeah, we don't say and that it's often. good. Um, thank Christ for that. But throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, typhoid epidemics were pretty common in Europe and North America. Notable outbreaks include the epidemic in Aberdeen, Scotland uh, in 1891, which led to the implementation of public health measures to improve sanitation and water quality. In the United States, 
the outbreak in New York City in 1906, known as the Typhoid Mary incident, played a pivotal role in shaping public health policies, uh, which we'll talk about more in more detail coming up in a little bit. And in England, the Public Health Act of 1848 brought about significant changes in public health infrastructure. The act established a general board of health, which worked to improve sanitation, implement clean water supplies, and control infectious diseases like typhoid fever. It's not always that they do like specific measures just for typhoid, because this is like one of like 10 different diseases that like comes up in very similar circumstances. So a lot of, you know, politicians and health officials during most of history were like, we can, if we deal with one, we can, we might as well deal with all of them. Okay. Um, the, so it was the like water's the, dirty, the we can just do all clean water. Yeah. Uh, a lot of places would also implement so-called typhoid boards in cities or entire government departments, whose sole job it was to find the causes of outbreaks, typically in the United States, and correct the underlying issue. I love, I love that term or that expression. We correct the underlying correct, issue. Correct the underlying issue. <laughs> Do not resist. <laughs> Gun. We are correcting the You're underlying issue. You're about to get issue. corrected, yeah. You get corrected, nerd. God. But yeah, the effects of typhoid fever on societies and individuals played a crucial role in shaping medical policies and public health measures. The understanding that the disease is primarily transmitted through contaminated food and water led to improved sanitation practices, uh, including the implementation of water treatment systems and sewage management. Public health initiatives and educational campaigns emphasize the importance of personal hygiene and hand washing to prevent the spread of typhoid fever. Please, God in heaven, wash your hands. There's And there's also, like, they went hard on this thing, by the way, like, washing your hands. Like, mm -hmm. there's a reason why it's seen as sort of, like, the default today, because very recently it really wasn't. Uh, what, washing your hands? Yeah. <laughs> No, because oh I, I don't want to know that. No, because like two hundred years ago, like washing your hands is like I mean, yeah, like if you if you have like you know, dirt on your visible hands. dirt on yeah. your hands, like yeah, you can wash them, but like if you don't see anything, you're good. Um, but during this time, uh, because of illnesses like typhoid, they they put up posters and billboards and uh, radio advertisements for a while, being like you every time you go to the bathroom, wash your hands. Every time you do something that's like nasty wash your hands even if it looks clean you gotta wash your hands use soap um, i hate that i really hate having to share like public spaces with people who i don't know if they're washing their hands or not mm -hmm. like this is a little bit of um i don't know like a fixation i have mm -hmm. that like i'm touching things in public and i have no idea if somebody like with poopy hands touched it yeah. before me yeah i hate like i hate that <laughs> Yeah, and we had to do that again, like, like during, during the early COVID. stages of COVID. I remember, I remember they they having like posters everywhere, being they still like, do. "Remember to wash your hands." Yeah. Not as much as in early COVID. They were they we were, they had radio the ads and everything. They have yeah, them all like, over the place the, in my office in well, my gym. Yeah, I mean, like in some places, but they had more during early COVID. Mm. Is all I'm saying. Sure. But yeah, like the clean hands campaign was a was a very elaborate campaign to like really ingrain that in the public consciousness and it helped please wash your hands folks <laughs> i beg of you but nothing is more significant than as we mentioned the development of antibiotics we love antibiotics they're great and in recent decades increased access to clean water improved sanitation infrastructure and the introduction of vaccines such as the vi polysaccharide vaccine in the 1980s and the 
TY21A oral vaccine in the 1990s uh, have further contributed to the control of typhoid fever globally. But unfortunately, it is still a significant problem in areas where health infrastructure and sanitation infrastructure are pretty undeveloped. All right, so we've been teasing Typhoid Mary a little bit earlier, but we haven't gone into a lot of detail. So um, it is my utmost pleasure to tell you about this lady um, and what she's done. So she was born in 1869 in Ireland, and she immigrated to the United States in 1884. So a lot of like, these dates are very much around the same dates that Ireland and England and the United States like either already implemented like sanitation acts or very close to when they would implement sanitation acts because she had obviously she had a, a huge influence on how the government and the public saw typhoid. So when she moved to the United States, she worked a variety of domestic jobs, eventually being hired as a cook in 1906 by a wealthy New York banker um, to serve as a cook in his swanky country house in a place called Oyster Bay. Americans love having places called the Oyster Bay. <laughs> Soon after the beginning of her employment, six people out of the 11 in the house became ill with typhoid. Hmm. Weird. Bad vibes. Initially, George Sober, who was the sanitary engineer who was called to investigate this outbreak, mm. um, you know, six people out of 11, like that's kind of, that's kind of serious. Yeah. So he was called to investigate. He thought that the people got sick from eating soft clams, since apparently the people in the house were huge fans of soft clams. They but, live in Oyster Bay. I mean, yeah, of course, they had a lot of clams. seems like... Easy. Um, but that theory was disproven because not everybody who was sick actually ate clams. And also because the people in the house had not eaten clams in six weeks um, before the outbreak. So that would have been too long for the disease to not develop. He also found that no case had occurred on the premises of the house. And nobody in the house had left Oyster Bay for a few weeks before the epidemic developed. Um, so he really turned every stone, asked everybody what they ate, the soft clam. Like, I'm really impressed with this guy. He really, like, was very thorough. But, okay, at this point, like, he kind of exhausted all the obvious explanations. So what he did next is that he looked into the history of the people who got sick and also at the recent events of the household. And he found that the family actually changed cooks about three weeks before the epidemic started. Not only this... <laughs> that, that virus went quick, huh? Yeah. Um, so they changed cooks, but also the cook left the family three weeks after people started getting sick. And her current whereabouts were unknown. She was out. <laughs> um, it was very difficult to find her. And also, like, find out more about her history, like, her employment history. Like, she was, she was gone. Um, but after some investigation, Sober discovered that Mary had worked for eight families over the course of 10 years, and seven of them were struck by typhoid outbreaks after she began her employment. Jesus. So this is a little bit like, hmm, like what's going on here? After Sober found out about this, obviously he wanted to find Mary and talk more to her because this is not normal. He kind of expected her to maybe have connected the dots herself um, or at least to be happy to learn of some ways in which she could protect others against infection. However, she 
was not very receptive to what he wanted to tell her. Um, Sober says that the interview was short and that it started in the kitchen and ended almost immediately at the basement door. And different sources say different things about this. Some some sources say that she chased him out with a rolling pin and some <laughs> say that she used like a carving fork. Oh, Jesus. Um, so it's a little bit of a... Yeah, people don't really agree. That's very funny. But anyway, she chased him out, so she did not... She had no desire to talk about it. What's interesting is he was like, okay, well, that didn't work. I'll try a second time. And the second time he brought a physician. And he was also like... The second time he also wanted to... Um, ask her for samples, like feces, blood, and urine samples. Mary, uh, I know you chased me out of here last time. Uh, please shit in a box. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, why would he... I brought this strange man, and I am also a strange man. Please shit in this box. <laughs> Obviously, she did not want to shit in a box. In his words, as Mary's attitude toward us at this point could in no sense be interpreted as cordial, he and the physician gave up and left. Um, so got chased a second time but at this point it was clear that this lady was the common denominator and also she um, I don't know she was a little like sussy about it she had something to hide so she needed to be further investigated as she did not consent to giving test samples she was soon apprehended apparently with much difficulty she was a very scrappy lady and was taken to the detention hospital of the health department during her stay at the hospital, Sober tried to interview her a last time, and he really just asked her if she had ever gotten sick with typhoid, and if so, when and where, and even assured her that nobody is accusing her of deliberately causing harm. At which point, Mary got up and locked herself in the toilet. Um, queen shit. <laughs> queen shit. Yeah, she she really didn't want to talk to him. I don't know. It's it's a bit it's a bit strange. She didn't want to. She didn't have anything to say to him. Yeah. During her stay, blood, urine, and stool samples were collected, and unsurprisingly, it was found that she was harboring typhoid bacilli colonies despite being in perfect health. So basically, she was a living, breathing, walking typhoid culture plate. Um, she would go to the bathroom, and I'm really sorry to say, not wash her hands, um, and then no. and then cook Mary. and then cook for the family no. where she was employed. Um, she got the shit hands. <laughs> She got the poopy hands. Oh. But what's interesting is that in the families struck by typhoid, the first people to be affected were the servants. So the actual family members were initially protected because the food that they ate were cooked immediately after she handled them. Like she was not the one to cut bread or cut fruit or arrange the salad. It was the other servants. Yeah. Um, but Mary came in much more direct contact with the food of the servants who then got sick first. Mm. However, in the case of the Oyster Bay family, it is believed that the way the family got sick was by consuming a dessert made from peaches and cream, which of course is served fresh. After the infection was discovered, Mary was kept virtually as a prisoner by the Department of Health for three years. She was allowed visitors and even had a job as a laundress, but she was never really she never really reconciled to her detention. And there are different types of speculations here. Some people say that she was never really properly informed about the risks that she's posing to other people, though it's also likely that she just found it hard to believe since she was asymptomatic. In any case, she was very upset about the possibility of not being able to work as a cook again, which is what the department was proposing. Another suggestion was that she would undergo surgery to remove her gallbladder, which was believed to reduce the risk of infection. If you remember from the 
From the introductory section, the bacteria often accumulates in the gallbladder. The gallbladder produces bile, and then the bacteria is released alongside the bile into the, um, the feces. So removing the gallbladder would remove like a large uh, deposit yeah. of bacteria. It makes sense. But she did not want that. On one hand, the surgery was risky. It was dangerous. But she also, you know, she, she considered herself healthy. So she was just very, like, resistant to the physicians, like, you know, doing tests on her or treating her in any way because she, she just did not think was sick. Eventually, she was released on the claim that she had not actually committed a crime or knowingly done injury to a person or property. Um, and also because she was held without having been given a hearing, which was against the Constitution of the United States. Eventually, she was released on the condition that she's never employed as a cook again and that she reports regularly to the Department of Health, which she did for a while <laughs> um, and then broke parole and disappeared for five years. And from I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> and from the fragments collected about her whereabouts, we know she continued to spread typhoid with the most notable epidemic breaking out in January and February 1915 in the Sloan Hospital for Women in New York City. It had Sloan? Uh, Sloan? Sloan? <laughs> Could be either. Hmm. So this hospital happens to be a teaching hospital, and therefore the standards of sanitation are quite high. Um, you know, they, the med students are coming in, they really want to like set a good example. So everybody's very careful about washing their hands and, you know, like sanitation. Except um, for... Except for... Miss Poopy Hands. Miss Poopy Hands. And Dr. Edwin B. Cragen, Cragen uh, who's one of the attending physicians at the hospital, or was... He's still there. <laughs> he stated that the outbreak was caused by a woman, uh, and I quote, whose hands became soiled with excrement and no. who, <laughs> through careless and dirty habits, infected the food of the patients. That's horrible. So this man is not mincing words. He is... Uh... Yeah, it's, mis it's shit hands. Miss shitty hands over there. She has shit in her hands. She's dirty and I hate her. She smells. She has shitty hands. Stop her, saying She things. soils her hands with excrement. Yeah. That's... My God. It's, uh, it's... Yeah, it's very straight to the point. So at this point, you know, very likely she had been told that she is spreading typhoid because she's not washing her hands properly. Um, and she was told, you know, she's putting people in danger. Like typhoid is a serious illness. Yeah, people um, die. People die. So she most likely knew about that, but she definitely knew that she was violating parole. So she knowingly kind of was breaking the conditions of her release. She disappeared soon after suspicion started to gather and then moved to New Jersey and then to Long Island. So she was like on the run. Finally, she was traced and removed to the Riverside Hospital of the New York Department of Health, where she was held without any prospect of being released until her death of pneumonia in 1938 at the age of 69. Oh no! Yeah, 1938. That's also like right before antibiotics for this for typhoid becomes like readily available, which would have cured her. Yeah, if she would have taken them. I mean, she was convinced that she was not sick. Like maybe antibiotics is a bit easier to convince someone to take than operating with the gallbladder, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Um, in any case, she's believed to have infected at least 51 people, three of whom we know have died, though the exact number is unknown and could be higher just because she did not cooperate. 
Um, and then the ethics surrounding her case are still debated, specifically the ethics of quarantining her against her will. But what makes this, you know, ethics discussion a bit more complicated is that the details of her case are still not fully known, which leaves some questions unanswered about her treatment by the Department of Health and the extent of their efforts to educate her. There is some speculation that her lack of cooperation was partly due to the stigma and the lack of empathy that she that she suffered at the hands of the department. You know, they kind of wanted her to isolate. They treated her as like a diseased person who should be quarantined and sh who shouldn't interact with people. And she, you know, she really didn't, didn't like that. She didn't want yeah. to be treated like that, especially because she didn't believe that she was sick. Um, so a lot of her resistance was probably due to that. But of course, people also did not have a good understanding of asymptomatic carriers. So maybe even the doctors did not, you know, they didn't fully understand. Mm. So she also didn't believe them. Yeah. Um, and then the lack of proper treatments is likely to have played a role as well. Like you said, antibiotics were not available yet. And the treatments that they had was like basically isolation and we remove your gallbladder and maybe you live, maybe you die. Um, that's not really something that, you know... Yeah people would want to do, especially not a person who doesn't think they're sick. So overall, I don't know, I feel like her case is kind of, it's difficult. She had a very tragic end to her life. She spent the rest of her life after being apprehended the last time, um, you know, she spent it isolated, alone. She only had one dog to keep her company. Like, it's a really sad end of her life, but she also just refused to change her behavior yeah. in any way and, you know, caused death and suffering to many yeah. other people. So it's, yeah, it's um, bad for everyone. Yeah. But that is the story of Typhoid Mary and the role that she played in the development of new public health measures against typhoid. Yeah. So that is our episode about typhoid fever. Um, despite the dramatic story of typhoid Mary, it's actually a very easily treatable disease today with antibiotics and proper sanitation, which doesn't exist everywhere, even though it very easily could. But that is a problem with capitalism and billionaires uh, hoarding wealth and now with the science. So we have done our part. <laughs> We're good. We got this. <laughs> we, you, you got this. We, we, the community, my community, we've done our part. The science community. Um, There's a meme that goes around that's like, uh, scientists kindly remind the world that clean energy technology ready to go whenever. <laughs> Just let like, us know, guys. We, like, we got it. We could do it. Like, we could fix so many problems today. Mm -hmm. But Elon Musk instead wants to buy Twitter. Mm -hmm. Of course, Twitter is extraordinarily important and yeah. needs to be bought but anyway that is the end of our episode and if you want to hear more of our lovely lovely podcast uh, please listen to other episodes on spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts go to patreon uh our, our patreon preferably and uh, <laughs> support us monetarily so we can buy snacks to support our wonderful recording Oh, um, oh, go to time. social media where we post and tweet incessantly occasionally. Um, 
Do we have other, yeah, other things? Yeah, Spotify does this thing now where you can actually leave um, the comments. Really? Yeah, on the episodes. I had no idea. Yeah, I found out today. We have two wonderful comments from people <gasps> saying that they like the episodes. I saw that and I was so happy. So if you have something to say, preferably nice. Please don't be mean to me. Please don't be mean. Don't be mean to us, please. We, we don't have the mental fortitude to, to, for people to be mean to us. Um, but you can leave a comment or a question, and then we'll have to figure out how to answer it. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure something out. But um, thank you for listening to the episode. Hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you on the next one. Bye bye. <laughs>